Today I want to take you on a journey to a distant land in a distant time. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, well, maybe not that distant, but I do want to take you on a journey today. I want to take you to the city of Ephesus. In our series through the book of Acts, last week we left Paul in Ephesus. He's on his third missionary journey, uh, and it's his second visit to Ephesus, having first visited the city on his second missionary journey. There on the map, in the uh, the western part of what is present-day Turkey, is located the city of Ephesus. Kathy and I had the privilege of visiting Ephesus in 1979 at a time one of the largest archaeological digs in the world, uh, and I understand it is so to this day. And I want to take you there now. Uh, This is a view of the ruins there at the city of Ephesus. You see the ruins of the city in the foreground uh, with the flat plains in the near background and the distant hills of what is known as Western uh, Asia Minor in the day of Paul. And there in the city, uh, we viewed the ruins of, uh, they believe this is the facade of the library there in Ephesus. Uh, This was uh, either a bar or uh, some sort of an eating establishment there. Uh, This was a cornerstone of the hospital in Ephesus. This is the Arcadian Way, uh, the marbled streets that would take you down toward the large amphitheater that which was the centerpiece of the ruins there at Ephesus. And on that Arcadian Way, you could see some of the early uh, Christian inscriptions there uh, etched into the pavement. And this, at the end of the Arcadian Way, was the amphitheater. Uh, It was carved into this hillside, Mount Pion, and that this uh, uh, amphitheater, even to this day, will seat up to 25,000 people. Uh, Just by way of comparison, the AT&T Center here in San Antonio, in its basketball configuration, will uh, seat a little over 18,000 or for a uh, concert venue, 19,000. This amphitheater would seat 25,000 people. Now, I wanted to share these pictures with you today of the ruins of Ephesus so that you might be impacted somewhat the way that Kathy and I were impacted back in 1979. We were impacted by the realization that the Ephesus spoken of in the scriptures was, in fact, a real place. And likewise, the people and the incidents that are spoken of in the scriptures there in Ephesus were, in fact, real people and real incidents. And what we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 19 
happened in a real place. It happened here in Ephesus. And the incident that we read of today involved real people. Beginning in verse 21 of Acts chapter 19, setting the context, Luke begins by stating, now after these things were finished, and just taking a pause there, whenever we see a phrase like that, now after these things, that should cause us to take pause and to ask after what things. There's a reason that Luke is stating what he is stating. Uh, Luke, I remind you, is a doctor, and he is very precise in what he is documenting here, not only in his gospel titled The Gospel According to Luke, The Life of Christ, but also over here in his companion writing, The Book of Acts, The Acts of the Apostles, or better titled, the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, there's a reason that he is saying what he is saying. And what he is saying here is that after these things were finished, not only after the things that were finished here in his second visit to Ephesus that uh, Michael Loudermilk shared with us last week, but after these things here, Paul coming moving toward the end of his third missionary journey. And he says, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. It's believed that Paul, here in Ephesus on his final visit, when it says that he stayed in Asia for a while, he was here in the city on the second and final visit for anywhere from two and a half to three years. But we hear the mind of Paul here, where he is shifting gears, and he is saying that he is no longer needed in Macedonia or in Achaia or Asia, that his work is done there, and now he is setting his sights on Rome via Jerusalem. His ultimate goal, though, is Spain. Uh, according to Paul, his work being, having been done there in Asia Minor, um, Paul was not one who, or was one who, by his own admonition, said, I do not build on the work of another. And so he has recognized that he has evangelized the areas of Asia Minor, of Macedonia, of Achaia, or what we know that area as modern-day Greece. His work is basically done there. And now he has set his mind like flint on Rome and eventually Spain. You can look over in Romans chapter 1 
where he writes to the church at Rome in verse 15 and says, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And in the 15th chapter of the letter to the church at Rome, he would say for this reason in verse 22, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Paul, as he is wrapping up, beginning to wind up or begin the last leg of his third missionary journey, he is letting those who are within uh, his hearing or his writing as he writes to the church at Rome, I am coming to see you. Um, Paul, uh, actually, if we go back to the verse that Michael Loudermilk ended with last week, verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Uh, this is one of seven uh, what can be referred to as progress reports in the book of Acts. What I love about the scriptures is I've come to realize that the scriptures are somewhat of a little puzzle. No, and it's no small puzzle. Um, but God, in, his, in the inspiration of his word, he gives us little helps and little clues to help us along our way. And I believe that through uh, Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not inspired to just write down ideas, but inspired to write the very words that he shares with us through this 30-year walk through the book of Acts and gives us these seven progress reports. Now, I would encourage you to mark these in your Bible. There's nothing unspiritual, nothing heretical about writing in your Bible. But these are helps to us to understand the flow of the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 2.47. First and foremost, though, let me begin by pointing out, as has been said uh, at the beginning, that the outline for the book of Acts is right there in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where he says, "...you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you." And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so it is that there we have the outline for the book of Acts. And so it is then that we have these progress reports as uh, we make our way through the book of Acts. Acts 2.47, concluding that section there of the witness in Jerusalem, the birth of the church in Jerusalem. Acts 6-7, concluding the section of the growth of the church there in Jerusalem. Acts 9-31, as the word goes forth from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria. Acts 12-24, as Paul begins 
taking the gospel to the remotest part of the earth. Acts 16.5, as Paul takes the gospel into Asia Minor. Acts 19.20, where we find ourselves today into Macedonia and Achaia, or as we know of modern-day Greece. And then Acts 28.30-31, ultimately to Rome itself. Paul is taking the gospel to the Gentiles in the known world of that day. And in order to better understand what happened in Ephesus that we're going to look at today, it's important for us to understand something about the city of Ephesus itself. Ephesus, as was pointed out, it's located geographically on the western side of modern-day Turkey. Uh, Ephesus was one of the most ancient cities of Asia Minor, dating back to the 11th century B.C. And in Paul's day, Asia Minor was a Greek province of the Roman Empire, and Ephesus was that capital city of that Asian province. Socioeconomically, uh, Ephesus was an important seaport on the Aegean Sea. Did you get that? Did you see that in the picture? No, you didn't. Because Ephesus, located on the banks of the Caister River, through the process of silting, the ruins of that city now sit seven miles inland. But in Paul's day, it was a strategic seaport on the Aegean Sea. It was a commercial capital of Asia Minor in Paul's day. We could say that Ephesus was, in fact, the New York City of Asia Minor. And religiously, as we read and heard last week from Michael, that there in Ephesus that Paul uh, confronted uh, the dabbling in magic, uh, the dabbling in the occult, and the polytheism, the worship of multiple gods in Greek culture. But there in Ephesus, Ephesus was known as the keeper of the temple of Artemis. That was its Greek name, its Roman name, the Temple of Diana, the mother goddess of Asia. Uh, This temple of Artemis there in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was built in the 4th century B.C. And it was built on a raised island located just off the coast in the harbor about a mile and a half out from the city of Ephesus. This temple of Artemis was 164 feet wide, 342 feet long. It was surrounded on the perimeter, on the outside, by 100 columns, six-foot base each, and 55 feet high. The roof of this monstrosity was of white marble tile. And uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor Stephen Lay, preaching 
on Acts 17 where Paul was in Athens and he showed us the picture of the Parthenon on the Acropolis uh, there in Athens, the ruins of which still stands to this day. The Parthenon was bush league compared to the temple of Artemis because the temple of Artemis rivaled the Parthenon in size by three times. It was an impressive work of art. And it was interesting that as a center of commerce and trading there in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis actually served somewhat as an international bank. On an annual basis, there was a month-long festival that was honoring Artemis, and this annual festival would draw up to a half million people to the city. Historically, the city was destroyed by the Goths in AD 262, and the ruins of this city were not discovered until late 1800s by J.T. Wood. So let's continue reading about what happened there in Ephesus. Verse 23, about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Now the way as we saw earlier in Acts 19, here it's being referred to a second time, was Christianity by some in that day in its infancy was referred to as the way because these Christians, these people were followers of the one Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so there's this disturbance It's no small disturbance at that, the Scripture says. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And when they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Here again is that theater where this mob began congregating and dragging in Paul's traveling companions, Gaius and Aristarchus. Notice that Ephesus 
as has been said, was the keeper of the temple, Artemis. And this shrine, this temple, was a source, or may I say that it was an economic engine within the community of Ephesus. And so it is that as Paul has evangelized Asia Minor, as the gospel has gone forth, as lives are getting changed, as the world is being turned upside down, as lives are being turned inside out because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, these artisans, these silversmiths, are beginning to feel the economic impact of that in a negative way. Think for a moment our own shrine to Texas Liberty here in San Antonio, the Alamo, which consistently ranks as the number one tourist destination in the state of Texas. Um, It's been estimated that Two and a half million visitors come to the Alamo each year. And think about the economic impact that that has within the city of San Antonio. Uh, Tourism is one of San Antonio's top five industries. Uh, Tourism accounts for one in every eight jobs here in San Antonio. Economically, tourism brings anywhere from 12 to $13 billion to the city of San Antonio. Think for a moment if the existence of that shrine to Texas liberty was in jeopardy, that we were in jeopardy of losing that for one reason or another. And the ripple effects that that would have within our economy. And now you can understand the uproar, the no small disturbance now that's taking place there in Ephesus. Because Demetrius himself, he says, you know that our prosperity depends on this business and that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. What these silversmiths, these tradesmen were involved in were the creation of these little silver shrines. Uh, They would weigh anywhere from two to seven pounds. The shrine itself was a replica that we realized later in this discourse uh, the, uh, the image that fell from heaven. It's believed that it was a meteorite and that that meteorite itself was supposed to be the image of the goddess Artemis, uh, which was a grotesque uh, image, a, a multi-breasted woman. And, and that's what these images were that they were fashioning, this replicating this image that fell from heaven of the goddess Artemis. And as a seaport and as a center of commerce and as visitors, travelers would come into the city either by land or by sea, they would go to, they would make their way over to 
the temple of Artemis. And there they would buy the little silver shrine to give as their offering to the goddess there in the temple, not to mention that there were some 1,000 prostitutes plying their trade there in this temple. It was a lucrative business, to say the least, for these silversmiths, and they felt threatened. Reading on, it says that when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, verse 30, the disciples would not let him, and some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Some of the disciples there, some of his own converts, were restraining Paul to say, Paul, to go into that theater is going to be a suicide mission. I mean, you can just picture Paul knowing that there's maybe as many as 25,000 people down there. He's thinking of this is another opportunity to share the gospel with a captive audience. And his disciples are saying it's not happening. Not only that, but the Asiarchs. The Asiarchs were the representatives of the Roman government in that area. And it says that Paul was friends with some of these Asiarchs. It shows that Christianity at this point was not seen yet as an enemy of Rome. And so it is that these Asiarchs, they themselves are restraining Paul and advising that he not go into this mob in the theater. Verse 32, So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come. Some of Luke's sense of humor here, that there were many in that crowd that were just swept up in the emotion of the moment. And yet, if you press them, many of them had no idea why they were even there. Some in the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. You know, that the Jews that were there, part of this mob crowd, they wanted to make sure that this mob understood that it wasn't because of the Jews that these tradesmen's well-being and livelihood were being threatened. And so they put forth this one Alexander. But it says that when they recognized that Alexander was a Jew a single outcry arose from them all, and they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine this? Upwards of 25,000 people in that arena, and it's a mob confusion. Many not even knowing why they're there, and yet they're just swept up and the emotion of it, and chanting for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, uh, while I was preparing this message, 
I love listening to 60s music. I grew up during the 60s, if you can't tell. But I love listening to 60s music because it kind of helps me go back and understand what was going on during that tumultuous time. And there was a song by Buffalo Springfield. It's actually written by Stephen Stills. And the title of the song is For What It's Worth. And it was about uh, demonstrations and riots there in Los Angeles at that time. The words go, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's wrong. What a field day for the heat. A thousand people in the street singing songs and carrying signs. Mostly say, hooray for our side. It's time we stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. That's what's happening there in Ephesus, in this amphitheater. It's a mob mentality. Nobody listening. Everybody talking. You know, this week I uh, watched some of those talk news programs about what has been going on and what continues to go on in our country uh, with the many shootings, uh, the violence. Um, One of the shows that I watched, the moderator, the host, had a a panel there. It was was a rather large group of maybe, maybe 30. And that group was made up of pastors. It was made up of uh, different leaders of the various groups uh, that we've seen protesting over the last few weeks, months, years. Um, It was made up uh, with uh, lawyers. Uh, It was made up uh, with um, uh, people uh, in in different positions in government. It It was made up of people, men and women like, like you and like me. And as this moderator was asking, posing questions to this group, what struck me as the chaos ensued is that everybody was talking on top of everybody else. And it really made me realize everybody's talking, nobody is listening. And that's something that I think we need more of in this country. We need more listening. We need less talking on top of each other and more listening to each other if we're really going to start beginning to solve the problems that we have in this country. Everyone's shouting, nobody's listening. Continuing on, verse 35, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk, which by the way, this is kind of a misnomer because the town clerk was really the person who was responsible for anything and everything that took place there in the city of Ephesus. He was the one who would actually wind up answering 
either to the Asiarchs or to Rome itself. And so it says, after quieting the crowd, this town clerk, this town leader said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. What we see here on the part of the town clerk is the voice of reason. He appeals to reason. He says, you know, these two, Gaius and Aristarchus, whom you've dragged in here, they have not been robbers of our temple. They have not profaned our goddess. But he goes on to appeal to legal recourse, where he says that the courts are in session There are ways to deal with this lawfully. And if this Demetrius has a complaint, he can do so through the court system. But it's also an appeal to caution because he recognizes and informs the crowd that any unlawful assembly and the boot of Rome is going to come down heavy upon us. You know, I think there's three observations that we can make of this account. First is the motive for this disturbance. What began as a religious appeal, in other words, that as Demetrius says that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be regarded as worthless, she might be dethroned from her magnificence, But prior to that, the real motive was disclosed in that their financial well-being was being threatened. This is only the second time in the book of Acts that there is opposition voiced against Paul or against the gospel for economic reasons on the part of the Gentiles. The first was back over in Acts 16. Second of all, There's a rush to judgment. The court of public opinion. And we see that on the news today, don't we? That rush to judgment before we have the facts. There was a good proverb that says in 1817, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes along and examines him. I have learned that the hard way many times in my marriage. (laughs) 
but I've learned it. (laughs) But lastly, the effect of the gospel. Notice that the attack is not against Paul as much as the attack is against the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not Paul that has impacted Asia Minor and the city of Ephesus. He was merely the vehicle. It's the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has impacted this city. It's the same gospel that it's worked, that's at work today. What is the gospel? Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 15, it's the gospel by which you are saved, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared. Paul would say in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the very power of God unto salvation. Paul would also write the church at Corinth, I did not come to you with persuasive words to wisdom, but I came to you in the power of the Spirit. That's the gospel that turned the world upside down in the city of Ephesus in Paul's day. That's the gospel that still saves today. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are so thankful for that gospel and the fact that Jesus has paid a penalty for us that we could not pay for ourselves. May we be as faithful saints, Father, as those who labored with Paul to herald that gospel in our day. And may it have its way within each one of us and within our world, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.